Actually, the last line of that hymn, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And that's uh, what we're continuing our study uh, on this evening. And I apologize, I didn't bring the the big study guide uh, things with me this evening. But uh, you can click on my weekly email and download it from there tomorrow. Um, But I did bring the kids notes if you wanted to grab any of those. One of the verses uh, just been on my mind and kind of an encouragement when you think about the Trinity, often not a Trinitarian verse you think of of 2 Corinthians 13, 14, uh, but I think it's on the screen behind me. Read that with me uh, out loud. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Fairly... Uh, Easy verse to memorize, but uh, one of those Trinitarian statements that we see, the, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all mentioned at one time. Last week, uh, I mentioned five things which we um, are kind of laying down as uh, what John Frame calls the Trinitarian basics. Um, number one, that God is one. Number two, God is three. Number three, the three persons are fully God. And, and often it'll stop right there, those three statements. But I like how Frame adds the two others to help, help just be those kind of reminders to us. Number four, each of the persons is distinct from the others. And then number five, the three are related to one another eternally is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to see that this evening as we continue. And uh, last week we saw really the definition of how each of those are God and how they are one. Today we're going to see the distinction of them as paragraph 3 continues and says, The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite without beginning, therefore but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. One of the things as we're reading confessions is there's a lot of words. And a lot of words that are sometimes words we don't use a lot. Peculiar relative properties is not a phrase we use often. Or um, begotten or proceeding. But what I want us to be reminded of that especially when it comes to the doctrine of God, words are important. And especially when we're in this discussion of the Trinity, Words are important, and often when we try to exchange the words for something else, we put ourselves in a, in a path of heresy. And it may think, well, we're trying to simplify things, but at the same time in trying to simplify, we're blurring edges. And uh, while some of these words we're reading are, are challenging, I, I hope that over time we can see that they're, they're important and that the, the men who wrote this didn't just throw random words up there, but the words had a meaning behind them. Did you know that Romans often wanted to kill Christians because they, cons- they called um, 
they thought the, the Christians were not being consistent, saying that they were polytheistic, that they worshipped many gods, and yet they were speaking of a trinity. Uh, the, the Romans did not understand it properly. But throughout all of history, there's been misunderstandings, and I mentioned a couple of them last week. And I, I want to mention just three uh, main heresies of God's distinctions. When we talk about how God is one and how God is three, uh, this can get blurred and misunderstood easily. And the first one, and really I think each, each of these heresies is removing one of those basics one of those Trinitarian kind of foundations that we saw just a moment ago. The first one is Arianism. Arianism, in short, says the Father alone is God. And that the Son and the Spirit are emanations. They proceed from the Father. So what they've denied is that not all three persons are fully God. All these truths that we're looking at about God and how the Trinity works are laid upon that foundation of the attributes of God. What can happen with Arianism is to look at the passages where Christ is spoken of only begotten or the firstborn in Colossians, the only begotten in John 1, and to see those in kind of our our type of thinking, thinking firstborn in order of creation, thinking only begotten, thinking of begotten meaning having given birth to, and not taking in the whole of Scripture to see what those mean, that they're not speaking in order of, but a glory of. That Christ, when we speak that he is the firstborn over all creation, it means that he is the one with preeminence over that he is the only begotten, he is a unique and special one above all. Arianism, again, says the Father alone is God. It denies that all three persons of the Godhead are not God, only one. The second one is modalism. You hear the word inside there, mode, and that kind of gives that one away. That there is one person who appears in all three modes, like God takes different masks and put those on, if you want to see it that way. There, this is, again, denying that God is three. Yet John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Christ, and the Word was with God the Father. Not saying he, at the same time, God the Father was this and then changed uh, fashion to be this. The, tr the, the statement at Christ's baptism we see also is a, a proof text against this. I would say that modalism is not seen much today. Uh, but it is something that we can accidentally fall into, uh, not being very thoughtful in how we're saying things. And then the third one is tritheism. Tri means what? Three and theas or theos would be God, so three gods. So not in seeing each as one, not seeing the three as one, but seeing the three as three distinct gods. Polytheism, many gods, and yet Deuteronomy six, Mark twelve, Jesus saying the first of all the commandments: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is 
one Lord. And again, this is kind of going back a little bit where we came from last week, but we see the foundation last week that God is one. This week that he is three distinct persons or a phrase that the confession uses, subsistences. Because persons we think of easily dividable. God is one in essence, three in subsistences, persons. Um, hypostasis is another uh, uh, theological word that's sometimes thrown out there. But even as we do this, there's misunderstandings that can take place on how this... John Calvin said this, Indeed, the words Father, Son, and Spirit imply a real distinction. Let no one think that these titles by which God is variously designated from his works are empty, but a distinction, excuse me, but a distinction not a division. And where where we can the two sides of the ditch we can fall into is making too much of a distinction between the three persons of the Godhead and then on the other side not making enough distinction. We can live as if there's only one person of the Godhead or we can live so much and try to divide them so much that we've lost the unity. Next week, we'll see a little bit more of how that unity and diversity is very applicable. I picked up this little thin booklet from Reformation Heritage Books, and it's entitled, Is the, is the Trinity Practical? And a great little booklet, if you happen to see it somewhere, grab it, and I highly recommend it. Wayne Grudem included a couple of these, actually, excuse me, all four of these that I I'm including right now as misunderstandings to understand how do the how do we think one yet three? First of all, it's not thinking in terms of divisions like a little piece of the pie. I think there's a little sim. Uh, Grudem puts that in his systematic theology. Not to think that God is one and we can divide Him up in that kind of satirical video that I've shared a couple of times, uh, they use the term partialism, uh, the three pieces of the three-leaf clover to try to think of God. What happens here is there's a clear distinction, and each is only a part, not fully God. You see how God is one, God is three, each person is fully God? That third piece, we have to see how this all holds together. To not divide God up. And here's another way that sometimes it can be thought of. That God is here and then there can be additions. Or there's a little bump on each side of the circle where a little bump sticking out is what makes the Son unique. What makes the Holy Spirit unique. What makes the Father unique. And that too is a misunderstanding Because what you're stating in that picture is there's a part of the Holy Spirit that is unique and is completely different from all the rest of the Godhead. That would mean that God is not cohesive, that he is not all the same. You may say, okay, then how are they different? Trust me, we're getting there. A third maybe error that we can misunderstand and think of is that... This is not just three different perspectives. Not just looking at it from three different ways. 
Notice, looking at God from this side, he looks like the Holy Spirit. Looking at him from this way, he looks like the Son. Looking at him from this way, he looks like... That would almost lend itself to be a little bit more modalistic. Depending how we're looking at God depends on which facet. So how are we to look at God? One of the challenges that we've that I mentioned last week is anytime we use an analogy of God in the Trinity, everything has fallen. Because everything we have is in a finite system to try to explain an infinite God. The closest thing that you can kind of come up with is the following this. Notice there's a circle, but what's inside of it? Dotted lines. Now, understandably, this is still limited. It is not a completely accurate picture. But there, if you try to draw tight lines to say, this is exactly how the, the Father is different from the Son and the Son is different, we have to be careful. So how do we draw the distinctions? We draw the distinctions in these ways. Number one, they're different in name. You may think, okay, of course. But don't downplay that. They're different in name. This is not change their essence. This is the peculiar relative property. When you think of relative, uh, you think of uh, how they relate to one another, and we'll see that in just a moment. But they're given different names. The Father... The Son and what? And the Holy Spirit. Those names are not names that were attributed by man to God. Those are names that God has given man to help understand Him. Those are names that have existed from eternity past. And let us not downplay the fact that God has, in the distinct persons of the Godhead, given names. To each. They're different in name. Secondly, they're different in how they relate to the world. They're different in how they relate to the world. Each has a unique function in how it relates to the world. God the Father spoke the world into existence. The Son carries out the actions of the Father. The Spirit was active in the process of creating the world. The Father planned redemption. The Son paid the price of redemption. The Spirit applies the redemption. If you were to read much on the Trinity, sometimes the phrase "the economy of the Trinity" would, uh, the, excuse me, the economy of the, yeah, the economy of the Trinity is thrown out. When we think of economy, we think of of like money, but it's the outworkings of. Now, the fact that each of them plays a different role, does that make them different in their essence? No. Nothing about all of their essence changes in the way that one deals with the world differently. And and then lastly... They're different in name, they're different in their relation to the world, and then they're different in their relation to one another. 
from eternity past, God has existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in doing so, he has given an example of how they relate to one another. God the Father and God the Son. We see through the confession that the Son begotten of the Father. Again, that does not mean that he was born of the Father, but there is a picture of submission there. And I think this is what's even better of the picture of true submission is they're completely equal, yet the Son has taken a place of submission. Does this mean he is inferior, lower? No. And we have to protect ourselves to not think that God the Father is the big God and that God the Son's kind of a, a little God and God the Spirit's another little God. And those two are at the bidding of the Father God. Notice that that would mean that they're not equal. But sometimes I think it's easy for our thinking to go that way, isn't it? Where the chief God is God the Father. And God the Son, when he says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of the Father, leads us to think, well, of course he couldn't. He's not the same. But that's denying what Scripture teaches about the Trinity God is one, God is three. All three are fully God. There's no greater than or less than. Father, Son, and Spirit are all the same. When we look at the attributes of God, all of, the, all of those attributes are possessed by the Father. All of those attributes are possessed by the Son. All of those attributes are possessed by the Spirit. Neither of them are lacking any of those attributes. And I know this is kind of heady, but if God the Spirit was not possessing one of those, it means that God is different, that he is not like God the Father. And there would be disorder. There would, not be, a, there would be a clear division amongst the Godhead, and that is not the case. Wayne Grudem says this, the only distinctions between the members of the Trinity are in the ways they relate to each other and a creation. The unique quality of the Father is the way he relates as Father to the Son and Holy Spirit. The unique quality of the Son is the way he relates as a Son. The unique quality of the Holy Spirit is the way he relates as Spirit. You know what I realize today? We, we often think, okay, God the Father... He's a father-type figure. God the Son, he's a son-type figure. God the Spirit is a spirit. But wasn't God the Son a spirit before he came? God the Father's a spirit. And I began kind of thinking, okay, why given the name spirit to the third person of the Trinity? Of course he's spirit. God is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit and truth. John 4. But it's because he functions to the world and to in relation to the other two members of the Trinity in that role. So in the big scheme of things, their differences are very small. But we can't ignore those differences. Often we can try to draw too big of a distinction 
and to miss out. I just jotted in my notes, is the father greater than the son? No. Is the son greater than the spirit? No. Do we always reflect that in how we speak? That's what got me. Because often we can, we can talk much about the work of Christ's redemption upon the cross. Is that not an incredible thing? Absolutely. But does that make him greater than the Spirit? No. Because he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, does that make him greater? No. And to not downplay the work of Christ upon the cross, but to elevate in our minds the understanding of how amazing God the Father and God the Spirit are. The Father has always existed. The Son has always existed. The Spirit has always existed. But in a way of how they relate to us and how they relate to one another, they are pictures or types of a Father, Son, and Spirit. Yes, Christ, when he came to earth, took on flesh. That would be the humanity of Christ. His deity did not change. He continued from, from all eternity past to eternity future. His deity is without change. As the confession says, all infinite and without being. In short, if I had to kind of boil it down, God is one, God is three. All three are fully God. The way that they are different is how they deal with one another, how they deal in creation, and their names. You might think, okay, that's not that big of a deal. That's really not that big of a difference. But if we downplay it, we downplay the fact of what God has said he is, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit. That he is three, yet one. I appreciate when great theologians like, uh, like John Calvin and uh, Wayne Grudem and uh, Louis uh, Burkhoff kind of boil it down. And even them come short with words. Uh, Burkhoff says in his uh, systematic theology... The Trinity is a mystery. Man cannot comprehend it and make it intelligible. It is intelligible in some of its relations and modes of manifestation, but unintelligible in its essential nature. The real difficulty lies in the relation in which the persons in the Godhead stand to the divine essence and to one another. And this is a difficulty which the church cannot remove but only try to reduce its proper proportion by a proper definition of terms. It has never tried to explain away the, excuse me, explain the mystery of the Trinity, but only sought to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity in such a manner that the errors which endangered it were warded off. Again, in defining the Trinity, often we're stating what it's not. 
because our ability to fully define what it is, we're limited. God is one. He is three. All three members of the Godhead are completely God. They work in distinctive ways to one another and to creation. As the Athanasian Creed says, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. I don't know about you, but the more I study the Trinity, the more I stand in awe of who God is. We see the whole of Scripture speak of it. We see the whole of Scripture relating it in ways that help us kind of grasp a little bit. But anytime we speak of God, we should end up at a loss. And we're not hiding from a doctrine. We're not trying to make up a doctrine. We're seeing a doctrine that's presented in Scripture, and we can stand in awe of it. God is one. God is three. All three are equally God. Each person is distinct from the other, and they're related eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have to keep coming back to those five things again and again and again. And the the joy is that we get to worship God in spirit and in truth. We get to see him as Father, Son, and Spirit fleshed out in every aspect of Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, the more we continue to mine your depths, we... We see a greater picture. And Lord, we stand in awe. Lord, we confess that as we see on the pages of Scripture that you are one yet three, uh, our minds struggle to understand exactly how that works. Lord, in one sense, help us to stand in awe of your mystery. May it compel us to worship you. But Lord, in the ability we have, Lord, allow us to understand it. Lord, help us to see that it's um, a beautiful picture of your unity and yet diversity. And Lord, I pray that it wouldn't just be something we chalk up in our minds as intellectual knowledge, but Lord, uh, that the truth of who you are and what you have done And what you are doing would lead us to praise and worship you greater. Lord, we ask for your help in Christ's name. Amen.